Well, as we look at the book of Zechariah tonight, it is noted for its very rich use of visions. There's a lot of pictures, there's a lot of symbols in this book. And he, of course, ministered around the same time as Haggai. In fact, it was about two months after Haggai that he began his first prophecy, or at least the first one that is written. But his ministry went on longer, at least the recorded part went on longer than Haggai's. Many of his prophecies deal with the with the Messiah and are still of things uh, that are to come. And so as we look at what word he had for them, we look at for the way that he, dis- he was uh, moved to uh, exhort the people to begin work on the temple. He came at it from a little different perspective than did Haggai. We know that the the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. We don't know too much about the person outside of what Ezra chapter 5 tells us. In chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, it said, The prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, the prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel was over them. So that's about all that we know of him is that he is the son of Edo. And actually, that was his... Uh, grandfather, I believe it was. He was the son of Barakai, who uh, was murdered between the temple. Uh, I'm sorry, not he was the son of Barakai. Zechariah was the one who was murdered at the temple and the altar, and Jesus is the one who tells us about that. Outside of that, we don't really know too much about it. There are a lot of Zechariahs in the Bible. I thought I wrote down the number, but it was... Um, I think somewhere around 23 different uh, Zacharias that are in the Bible. So it's not an uncommon name for them. We had that go on quite a bit. And so he pulled up a couple of uh, images for us to get them <clears throat> to take a look at. And so with that, <clears throat> if we can pull up our first one, just to give us a few ideas of the overall look of Zechariah. Over here, we have that his name means the Lord remembers. He was born in Babylon. He was not even born in Jerusalem. His father was Berachai, who probably died young, and his grandfather is Ado. Ado is the one who adopted him and raised him. Ado was a priest, so Zechariah was both a prophet and a priest, uh, like Ezekiel and John the Baptist. He was most likely had returned to Jerusalem from Babylon when Zerubbabel and Edo did in 538 B.C. And he prophesied 18 years after the return from the Babylonian exit, uh, ex- exile, around uh, 520. Two months after Haggai, as we said, and he was a young man. His prophecy, I thought this was a neat stat here, his prophecies are quoted or alluded to in at least 41 New Testament scriptures. And Jesus spoke, of course, of his martyrdom. We mentioned that to you already. Go on to our next one. We have the different content that is here. And this is a nice little outline that I think the Ryrie Study Bible put together. We have the eight visions of Zechariah, and they come up through chapters 1 and chapter 6. The horseman, the horns and the smith, the measuring line, the high priest, the olive trees, the flying scroll, the ephah, and the four chariots. And these are the... Uh, the visions that he will go over. And then we have instructions for his people. We have true fasting that is talked about in chapter 7, obedience to the word, and Jerusalem's future is in chapter 8. 
Then have God redeems his people in chapter 9 through 14, their rejection of the Messiah in chapters 9 through 11, and the return and reign of Messiah in chapters 12 through 14. That is the overall content online. We can go on to the next, next slide. This is the timeline of just Zechariah. So this is uh, Nebuchadnezzar. This is when he conquered Judah. This over here is where Cyrus of Persia conquered Babylon. So 586 is when Nebuchadnezzar took Babylon. 539, approximate times. It just depends on which person you go to. Sometimes they differ by a year. Uh, Cyrus of Persia conquered Babylon. Cyrus decrees return of the Jews in 538. Then over here, 535, we have the construction for the temple beginning. It was halted in 530. Darius becomes king in 521. Haggai and Zechariah begin their prophetic ministry in 520. The work is restored. In 515, the temple is completed. Ezra goes to Jerusalem up around here. 458. Nehemiah goes in 444, and the walls are finished here in 443. The ministry here of Zechariah begins around this area and takes place in and around here. We can go on to the next slide. This, of course, is when there was the kingdom of Judah. And then we had the Babylonian captivity. This is the 70 years and then the rebuilding. Nebuchadnezzar was king all through these areas. And then Belshazzar was going on. Daniel the prophet. These are the years of Daniel the prophet. He, he was born over here during the kingdom of Judah. He was around 18, late teens somewhere, that when he was taken captive and he went over into Babylon. That's where he, of course, started right away into his prophetic ministry. And so that picks up here in the darker uh, purple area. And so Daniel goes on. Not real sure what time Daniel's ministry stopped. But what we do know is that his ministry was going on while Haggai and while Zechariah had begun. So Daniel is continuing on into here. He's continuing into the rebuilding of the temple. Jeremiah is back over this way. And Ezekiel is over here. It wasn't too long ago we did Ezekiel. So you can see Ezekiel was uh, younger than Jeremiah. And that's where, he, that's where his life began. The way they did this one, the lighter, is where their life began. And this is where their ministry began and continued on. Go on to the next one. Now... Over in here, we have the different prophets. So these are the times. This is the fall of the northern kingdom. If you see that little red lightning bolt looking thing there, that is when the northern kingdom fell around 722. This is when Babylon came and conquered Jerusalem in 606. And in 586 is when Babylon came back and destroyed the walls and the temple. They didn't do that the first time, but they kept rebelling. So they came back the second time. So 606 is when they came under Babylonian rule. 586 is when the temple was destroyed. Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Micah, Jonah, Joel, Obadiah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Daniel, and that's a funny spelling, but that is Ezekiel. <laughs> so that's, uh, these are all the guys that were going here in the, the older part. We're picking up over here with Zechariah, a guy, of course, real short ministry for him, at least as far as what is recorded. And then Zechariah, he picked over here in 420. Uh, looks like somewhere around 480 is when he uh, ceased. And I believe he was, as uh, we, we told you, he was martyred. So that's about 40 years worth of ministry that he had gone on here for Zechariah. Malachi picks up here in 425. That's uh, towards the, the end of that line. 
All right, we can go on. I think there's another one we have. Is that the last one of those? Very good. Well, let's pick up here in Zechariah. Gives us a little idea of what's going on with our our study here. And I was wondering how many people have have uh, never done a study of Zechariah. You may have read little parts, a little here and there, but never did it. And if you're online, if you want to put up a comment on there, love to see if anybody has done a study on this book. It's not a real popular. Uh, one, but maybe when we get finished this, you'll have a little bit more of an appreciation and understanding of it. It surely must be something if so many times it is quoted or referred to in the, in the New Testament. In verse 1, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechai, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, Just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Now this word comes about two months after Haggai's. Haggai prophesied in the sixth month, in the first day of the month. And it comes within one, somewhere, somewhere within one month after his second. Because Haggai had his second prophecy on the seventh month and the 21st day of the month. And this is sometime in the eighth month. We're not given today, just told it's the eighth month. So somewhere within a month or so of the of Haggai's second word. So Haggai has had two prophecies and then we have Zechariah coming up. The time frame of this is somewhere in October, November of around 520 B.C. Now, like Haggai, Zechariah's message is one of encouragement, but also exhorts those that are in sin. If we only had Haggai to go on, we might conclude that all God was really interested in was the temple and the work being restored. But Zechariah gives us more of a story and and they and showed how God is very much interested in the lives of his people, not only of the buildings. A reminder is given of the sins of their fathers and their lack of repentance along with a call to do better. So this is what your fathers did, but, but you can do better. You can, you, can, you can do better than they did. Of course, they didn't set the bar real high <laughs> when you're looking at, at what they're, they're doing there. But uh, over in verse 3, when it says, Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. <clears throat> it could refer to a feeling of discouragement from the adversities that they were experiencing, from the, the troubles they were having and accomplishing the task that was set before them. They came with a purpose and they were having a hard time accomplishing that purpose. And that can be discouraging when you made a trek as long as they did to accomplish a certain thing and you're not getting it done and you kind of resigned yourself that it's not going to happen. That can be discouraging and you may find try and find purpose elsewhere, but it's not going to have the purpose that you originally came there for. So they were feeling somewhat discouraged. And that could be what he's referring to. In Haggai chapter 1, verse 6 and 11, I'm just going to read this for you. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. 
You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into bag, into a bag with holes. Describing the situation they were in. You'll remember this from when we were just going through it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins. While every one of you runs to his own house, therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land, and the mountains and the grain and new wine, and the oil on whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. So Haggai is painting a picture that they feel discouraged, that they're working hard, but they're not quite getting back what they think that they ought to be getting. And so that can create an atmosphere for discouragement. But our returning to God must be our choice. God's not going to make the choice for you. He's not going to make it for anyone. We can't make prayers. God make the choice for them because God will not make the choice for them. James 4, 8 says, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It is up to us. I must draw near to God. And this is what he's exhorting them. Haggai did. Zechariah did. You need to draw near to God. Don't be sitting over there and saying, God, you need to do this first. No, God says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. He says this thing, overtake your fathers. Let me read that uh, part again. There it is, uh, verse 6. Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, Just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. I pulled up the New Living Translation because I think this comes out a little bit easier for you to understand. But everything I said through my servants, the prophets, happened to your ancestors just as I said. As a result, they repented and said, We have received what we deserve from the Lord of heaven's armies. He has done what he said he would do. Everything I said through my servants, the prophets, happened to your ancestors. So that overtake your fathers. Everything that he said, it happened to them. It overtook them. And that's what he's, he's talking about. I said these things would happen. And every one of them came about. The fathers may have died. And those things still came about upon the people upon the, the land that God had said. And so this is the introduction that he has in here of the, the word for the people. But now we're going to get into a vision. And he's going to go right into the vision. It's called the vision of the horses. On In chapter 7, let's take a look at that. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechai, the son of Edo, the prophet. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. And it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. And then I said, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, we have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Now this came about three months later. This vision came to him, and he sees this vision. He's interacting with this. And sometimes people, and this, this is where you can see how people get messed up in Scripture, get messed up with interpretation, because we're talking about horses here, and we're talking about colors. 
And guess where most people's attention is drawn to when they want to correlate this with Scripture? The book of Revelation. Because the book of Revelation has four horse riders. Except there is no correlation between the two. They have nothing to do with each other. The horses in Revelation have colors of white, black, red, and pale. That is the colors of the four horses. The attention is on what those particular horsemen do and the accomplishments that they have in the earth, and none of them are really good. The colors here, this is Hebrew being compared to to Greek, and this is a lot of centuries in between. But the colors here are three. They are red, they're sorrel, and they're white. So white and red we had. There is no black. And um, sorrel, best I can tell, let me see, I, I know I wrote this down in here. Sorrel is sort of a dirty yellow or a spotted brownish orange. <laughs> yeah, I saw one other description of the color that was still in the orange family. Um, it doesn't sound like a very attractive color. And maybe you, maybe you can make a case for this being in the area of the pale. If you go with the, uh, the yellow part of it, the dirty yellow, maybe that's the, the pale. But still, these things are very different. And so if you just focus on one aspect, well, we got some of the similar colors. Uh, but do not think for a moment that because we have three colors that we have three horses. Because it does not say you have three horses. It says you have horses of three colors. There are multitudes of horses. But there are three colors of those horses. They are red. They are white. And they are sorrel. It is very possible that these colors represent angelic ranks or offices. And each each one... You know, if, if you're a fan of Star Trek... <laughs> You know that Star Trek has how many colors in the uniforms? It's got red, it's got blue, and it's got that yellow color. And each of those, each of those colors is corresponding to a rank. Everybody knows that if you have an away team, at least in the first, the first uh, grouping of them, if the away team person was in a red shirt, they're probably going to die. That's just how it was. They were they're an extra. <laughs> because the important people were in blue and yellow. That golden yellow. The color. You know, that was the the bridge crew was in the golden color. The blue had another one in there. Now later on the red became known as the um uh engineer, engineering, red became the engineering part. But I don't believe there was so much so in the in the first one. They had the, the common people that were involved in, in that one. But anyway, you you know how the how they would do this, they would have certain colors. And they would represent different ones. Well, it is possible that what we're seeing here in the three colors are different ranks, different offices of angelic beings because these are angelic beings that are sent out by God for the purpose of observation. They are not to do anything. They are just to observe. Let's go over the version again. Verse 8, I saw by night and behold a man riding on a red horse... So one man is riding on a red horse and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow and behind him. So this one on the red horse 
stood uh, stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow and behind him, so he's out in the front, behind him were horses red. So if he's on a red horse, there's also other horses behind him that are also red. Sorel and white. Then I said, my Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said, I will show you what they are. And the men who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, now, I'm sorry, the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth, not throughout Israel. They are to go throughout the earth. So all of these are on horseback and they're riding. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Now, we first read that. How many thinks that sounds good? Does sound good, is it? It is not good. It is not. I think it was the show Hee Haw. I don't know. I I have this memory of just kind of pops in every once in a while. This this memory that I think it was a Hee Haw show, and the guy would be there telling a story to somebody, and he'd be telling them something that uh, something bad. Oh, that's bad. No, 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 that's good. <laughs> and he'd go on to tell more of the story. Oh, that's bad. No, 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 that's good. And he kept. Do you remember that uh, routine that was there? I'm pretty sure that was on Hee Haw. Maybe that's uh, before all your times. I don't know. But, but it was funny. We can go back and forth. You look at this thing. You say, oh, that's good. No, that's bad. No, that's bad. It's, it's not good. God's not happy with what's going on here. We have walked to and fro throughout the earth. And behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Now, you remember the horses in Revelation. They're not walking through the earth trying to find the earth quietly. They're out there and they're causing some trouble. Not these ones. They're just walking through and just checking things out. So, as we said, the colors do not indicate three riders, but multiple riders on horses of three colors. Three different colors. Uh, they were on a mission of observation, and God is showing Zechariah what already happened. This is not something that is happening in Zechariah's day. This has already occurred. And Zechariah is taken back to see it. It is not a reenactment. He is taken back to what happened at the end of the 70 year period. He gets to go back. Just like John got to go forward and see Revelation, Tribulation unfold, Zechariah goes back in time and he sees what happened. This, he is not seen, this, this is not a, let's, let's reenact this for Zechariah. Zechariah is going back in time because God can go back and forth in time all he wants to. We've mentioned that to you before. It's how John got to the future. That's how Moses got to the transfiguration and Elijah with him. And that's how they also get into the book of Revelation because they are transported from the past to the future because unless they are alive and have a human body, they have no right to be here and to exercise the things that they would be doing. So they have not died yet, but they will die. And what is really fun about God is they will die in the past while they exercise their mission in the future. <laughs> Put that in your, 
uh, what's that? Put that, put down your pipe and <laughs> I don't know what, you, I don't know how you figure this stuff out. People are, we can't figure God out on this thing because God is involved in all times at the same time. So he takes him back to what has already gone on. Now, before we go on with what they, uh, God's response to this, let's take a look at the last verse on here. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Now, why in the world, in this vision, are we making uh, the, the point about the myrtle trees? Myrtle trees are not mentioned all that often in Scripture. I think, I think the total of this is about six times that they are mentioned in Scripture. We have myrtle trees come up. But yet, here they are. I wrote in your, I just pulled something from the uh, internet on definition on this. The myrtle tree is a fragrant evergreen shrub with small glossy green leaves and white star-shaped flowers with long stamens. And after their blooming purple-black berries, uh, possibly they are a symbol of the people of Israel. In Isaiah 55, 13, instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Isaiah uses the myrtle tree to illustrate life and fertility. As he prophesies, it growing instead of the plant that symbolizes dearth and drought. So I pulled up some pictures so that we can see some of this. If you'll pull some of them up for us. The myrtle tree, it's, it's an always green and it has an extremely strong root system. This is what a myrtle tree will look like. This is not an old one. This is uh, not a super young one, but this is, uh, this is a growing one. This is kind of the, the long-range look at it. Pull up the next picture. We're going to get a little closer look at, at this. That's a little closer look. You can see the evergreen the leaves that are there. You may have seen other kinds of uh, plants that have similar ones like this. Pull in our next one. This is an even closer shot. There's the flowers. This is what it would look like there. That's that's what a myrtle tree basically is. Uh, pull up the next one for us. The uh, that's what the wood would look like, and keep that up there for us. The myrtle tree. It's a it's a very slow growing tree. It starts out as a, basically a shrub. It looks like a shrub, and it uh, only adds about 12 inches per year. It takes over a hundred years for this tree to finish growing. But once, once it matures and it gets bigger, it will not resemble the shrub that you see in the, in the beginning. It has a massive trunk of trees. In fact, the trunk of a myrtle tree is made up of several myrtle trees. They actually begin to grow together. And if you ever look at the trunk of a myrtle tree, you will see that numbers of trunks have just kind of twisted together. And they form this myrtle tree. It's a very unusual type of type of growth that is there. So a full-grown myrtle tree is often several stalks that have grown together. And it may take time for it to make one great tree. They do root very deeply. They send roots uh, down. And if you cut off, if you take a myrtle tree and you cut it off to a stump, the root structure is so deep and so strong that it will grow back. You can cut it all the way back down to a stump again, and it will grow back. It is uh, amazingly resilient that way. And 
quite truthfully, it is a great depiction of what's going on here now because Israel has been cut down to a stump and they are growing back. And so when they are there among the myrtle trees, they they know where this kind of a tree is. It grows around this area. We do have them out, I believe, in the northwestern United States. They have the, a similar myrtle tree. In fact, it's not the same, but it's, it's similar enough. They actually think that some seeds were brought over and were planted there. And that's how they uh, they came over that way. So if you're ever in the northwest area of the country, I am told that you can find some of them out there. But the comparisons between this and Christianity is uh, it's quite astounding because we become stronger by joining together. And that is uh, certainly one of the pictures that is that is here. The myrtle tree, the wood is varies in color. So I want you to see the picture of this. You can see how you have some dark, some light. And this is what the uh, this can very much do. It does this because it pulls from the nutrients in the soil. And so the nutrients in the soil, uh, depending upon how how strong they are one year and how weak they are another year, it uh, changes the color of the wood. Also, it is uh, shaped by the adversity that it faces. So if there's a lot of storms, if there's drought, if there's a surplus of water, flooding, it all changes the, the grain. So the grain can get affected by such things as uh, the conditions that it's in and the color gets affected by the soil conditions that it's in. And so we have that. But it makes for a wood that is very highly in demand. If you can pull up our next picture for us. That's actually a table that is made out of myrtle myrtle wood. And you can see the different colors that are in on it. Pull up the next picture if you would too. That is a table right there. How would you like to have that table in your house? That is quite a... You can see all the different kind of colors. The different types of grains. It's a very unique word. Was there any more beside that one? That was the last one. I was thinking that was a... That was it for us. So that's, uh, that'll give you an idea of what this, this wood is like. So we've got a, the angels that are by the myrtle trees, and these trees are able to withstand all kinds of conditions. They can withstand drought. They can withstand surplus uh, of water, flooding. They can take conditions of the soil that are good. They can take conditions of the soil that are bad, and it will change the color of the wood. But that tree just keeps on growing. And they get bigger, slow growing, but they get bigger and bigger. Pieces that are made from this wood often become treasured heirlooms and families have them for many, many decades. I made this note in this. Adversity doesn't destroy it, but adds to the beauty of the end product. And certainly Israel has gone through some adversity. And being among the myrtle trees... I think God is saying to them, you've been through some tough stuff, but this is only going to add to the beauty. Don't think that I'm rejecting you because of all the tough things that you've been through. But the very fact that you're here and the very fact that these angels are here going through the earth is because I do have a love for you and we are bringing you back. And just like the myrtle tree can be cut down all the way down to the stump, you will grow back. Verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered the angel who talked with me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. 
He's not happy with the state of peace that everybody's in. For I was a little angry and they helped, but with evil intent. Now, we want to try and make some heads and tails of, of all this that he's there. Uh, first off, the Lord refers to this part here. The angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you are angry? These 70 years. 70 years we know that was determined that Jeremiah had prophesied about this. And there has been some debate. People are trying to, well, I don't know if it was quite 70 years. Some people want to say it was 68. And we don't have the uh, exact dates on all the things were going on there. But what I do know is that Daniel, when he read Jeremiah's prophecy, said the 70 years are up. To him, 70 years had been completed. To Zechariah, the 70 years had been completed. To the people that they prophesied to, the 70 years had been completed. No one complained that it was too long or too short. Of course, nobody complained that it was too short. But nobody complained that it was too long. But I think the best case for this is the angel of the Lord is saying 70 years. Now, I don't care who wants to come out today and try and pass judgment on whether it's 70 years or not. We've got all those witnesses in the day saying 70 years. And just as all the people in Jesus' day witnessed that it was three days, we know that was three days. And I know this was 70 years. But it is very possible that uh, there may have actually been three distinct 70-year periods in which the Lord could have referred to. The 70 years of Babylon, domination over Jude and Jerusalem, uh, and the surrounding nations, of course, too, went from 609 to 539. That's 70 years. Now it is in Jeremiah 25:11. And this whole land shall be desolate and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord. And I will make it a perpetual desolation. Jeremiah 29.10 For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Second Chronicles 36.20-21 And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of kingdom of, of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath as long as she lay desolate she kept Sabbath to fulfill Fulfills 70 years. Now that's Chronicles. Now Chronicles, of course, is a history that was written and it was probably written after uh, Zechariah was uh, had the chance to see this. I don't know that Zechariah would have access to this particular chapter. In Daniel 9, the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books of the numbers of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would Accomplished 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So there are 70 years of indignation on Jerusalem and Judah. And in this time, we could look at that as from the time that the temple was torn down until the time that the temple was restored. That would go from 586 until 516 B.C., which would come out to 70 years. 
there's also the uh, the actual Jewish captivity. The actual Jewish captivity would have begun in 605 B.C. and would have gone on to around the time it looks like around 536 B.C. And that would have been 70 years. So you could have 70 years of dominion, 70 years of captivity, and 70 years in which the city of Jerusalem was in indignation. You all got, you got three 70-year periods. I think not only God gave them a 70-year period, He gave them three of them. And you can take your pick which one you want to do, or, uh, or all three. So if you, if you look at this event that we're seeing here, the people have gone around the world and they have looked at what has gone on here. Let me, let me just go back and, uh, and read this. Verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which you were angry these 70 years? Does this sound like it took place after the returnees came back? Or before they were set free from Babylon? To me, it sounds like it came about before they were set free from Babylon. Because the question is, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem? Once the returnees came back and the decree was ordered by Cyrus, the mercy had been extended. This is before that. That would put this event somewhere around the time of Daniel's question. Lord, how long? Lord, what will happen after the 70 years? That means that the people in this, uh, or the angels in this vision had been going around looking at the nations before Daniel asked his question. And that this meeting took place probably around the time, right before the time of Daniel's asking this question. And that means that Zechariah was taken back to a time before Daniel even asked the question. And he's seeing what's going on. So we look at what happened with Daniel's question and we see what happened in heaven and what was dispatched. But sometimes we may not see what had occurred over here that God had already sent out people. I want you to go around. I want you to see what's up with the nations. What are the nations seeing? What are the nations feeling right now about Jerusalem? And they came back and they said, all the world is at peace. They're, they're in a good place right now. And God said, I'm not happy with that. I was angry with my people. I was a little angry, he said, with my people. Let's go on and read that. And the Lord answered the angel who talked with, to me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said to, to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. So he's telling them what had gone on. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. For I was a little angry that they helped, but with evil intent. I'm sorry, I was a little angry and they helped, but with evil intent. So what God is saying is this. All that sin that Israel got into, and that caused me to dispel them from the land and send them into into captivity with Babylon, that came about because I was a little angry. 
But I am very angry with the nations that are around. All right. If all that sin made God a little angry, as he, as he calls it, with Israel, a little angry, <laughs> think of all the things that have gone on in the prophecies that we looked at in Ezekiel. Look at all the things that went on in the prophecies we know about in Jeremiah. Look at all the things that went on with the prophecies that went on around with the other nation, other prophets that came up for Israel. And God says, that was me a little angry. But I am real angry with the nations and the reaction and the response that I am seeing with them. Hmm. We read that verse again. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. For I was a little angry and they helped but with evil intent. So God says, judgment had to come. They brought it. They helped me with that, but they had an evil intent. That means that God did not expect them to administer His judgment with evil intent. He was displeased with how they went. The... um, now, I think I put this in your outline. Just make sure I gave you that blank. Now, put this event in a timeline. This occurs before Daniel's vision. Right around or before somewhere in, in that neck of the woods when Daniel asked the question about the 70 years. Now, Daniel was looking for answers in Scripture and God gave him answers in Scripture. It's a whole lot easier to, for God to give you answers in Scripture when you're looking. And Daniel was looking. He just didn't know where to look and then all of a sudden his eyes were open. We said to you on, I believe it was Sunday, it's easier and more desirous to reveal things to one who is looking or is hungry. Zechariah 1.15, I want to read this to you in the New Living Translation. But I am very angry with the other nations that are now enjoying peace and security. I was only a little angry with my people, but the nations inflicted harm on them far beyond my intentions. Hmm. So God is angry at the nations who executed his judgment, not because they did it, but with how they carried it out. So if you ever look at some of the prophecies that God says, all right, Babylon's going to come in and do this and I'm going to judge them afterwards. God is already knowing they're going to come in and do what I asked them to do, but they're going to do it with evil intent. They're going to go over and above what I asked them to do. guess they're going to enjoy this too much. They did it with evil intent. They did it. They were overly cruel in the way that they did it. And they did more than they were commissioned to do. I think this is one of the most astounding things out of this chapter. Even those who don't follow God, he expects them to understand some of what he wants. Can you get anything else but that from here? God is mad at them. Is he? Is God going to be righteously mad? Yeah, he's going to be. He's, going, he's not going to be unrighteously mad. He's going to be righteously mad. So if he is mad at the nations for what they did and the peace that they are now at, even though Jerusalem is disrupted and barren, and that is his land, that is his people, and the rest of the nations don't care, don't have any concern about God's concerns, they're just at peace. They're out doing their own thing. And they are enjoying themselves. And God's mad at them. He expects people 
in the world who don't follow him to at least know a little bit about what he wants. I found that kind of amazing. (laughs) But I can't take anything else away from that. God expected them to know at least somewhat of what he wanted. Now, I would imagine that some of the prophets had spoken to them about it. If you remember when Babylon came in, Nebuchadnezzar spared the prophet Jeremiah because he knew Jeremiah was prophesying to them surrender. If he knew that Jeremiah was prophesying that, he may have also known some of the words that were spoken. And Jeremiah may have even given him some words from the Lord and told him, this is what you are commissioned to do. And Nebuchadnezzar may have violated that. We don't know. But if God is going to be righteously angry, and we know that He always is, and He is very angry with the nations, then He has a right to do so. If they want the protection of exercising God's judgment, then they cannot carry out their own. And that is something we need to understand. There's a lot of Christians out there we want to carry out our own judgments. But we are only commissioned to carry out God's. And only commissioned to carry out what He wants to be done. Not what we want to be done. If God held the nations of the world accountable like this, how much more does He hold His own people accountable? If we pass judgment on those who go against God, it is our responsibility to know what is within the will of God and stay there. There is a judgment to be passed and even expected. God expected the Israelites to judge what some of the kings wanted to lead them into and reject it. He expected them that if they led them into these foreign gods, they would reject those foreign gods. He expected if they led them into infant uh, sacrifice, that they would reject it and not accept it. He expected that of his people and his people didn't do it. They served the Baals. They served these foreign gods. They let kings lead them into it. And they did not, not all of them, probably some who, who stood away from it, but God expected it. Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, they rejected what the king of Babylon had planned for them. They rejected it in the meals. They rejected it in the uh, fiery furnace ordeal. They rejected it in the petitions to only the king. And probably other ones as well. They rejected what the king had planned. They did not accept it. There were other Jews in the nations who went along with it. They did not. Judah judged wrongly what Jeremiah had told them. And the Lord said they rejected the word. Jeremiah said, the Lord says, stay here. And they said, no, you're wrong. We need to go to Egypt. And they went to Egypt. They rejected the word that Jeremiah brought them. They judged wrongly. The Jews in Jesus' time were busy judging Roman taxes and Sabbath laws instead of understanding the will of God for those days. God expects us to pass judgment on the things that are happening in our world. He expects us to understand, is this the will of God or is this not the will of God? Should I go along with it or should I go against it? If he expected the heathen nations to understand at least a little bit of what he wanted. And he judged them for not doing it. How much more? His own house. 
we got to know what the will of God is. So what would you say is the thing that distracts you the most from understanding the will and the purpose of God? There are things that distract us. You look at all the times in the Old Testament when they didn't understand the will of God. You look at the times in the New Testament when they didn't understand the will of God. It's because they were distracted by something. The Pharisees were distracted by things so they couldn't see what the will of God was for that day. People today have been distracted by teaching that it's God's will for you to be sick. God's going to teach you something through that sickness. And because of that, they can't hear anything contrary. You know, if you had people in your life, and then they've been brought up that God has a purpose for sickness. And you try and tell them anything different. How's it go? They can't hear it. They're distracted by those things. Some are distracted by being brought up to understand that there is no God. And they can't see God in the things that believers see Him every day in. Others have been brought up with certain political beliefs and even though the Word of God seems clear, they can't hear it. Certain doctrinal issues like eternal salvation, spiritual warfare, gifts of the Spirit, worship, prayer, they can be so ingrained in us that not... Not only does God's word not support it, but we can't hear anything that would make us think anything different. No, worship is three hymns, singing verse number one, two, and four. That's what worship is to them. You can't tell them anything different. Gifts of the Spirit, they're all long gone, and you can't tell them Anything different. You can show them in the Word, but you can't tell them anything different. It's so ingrained that they can't hear it. Does God change His expectation? Absolutely not. God expects a certain level of understanding, even from unbelievers. So how much more does He expect from those that are His? So, we ask you this question. How do we fall into our lower level thinking? How do we fall into that? Because more than likely, we may already have a lower level of thinking, or certainly we've had some in the past. So I divided into three areas. You can write as much notes as you want to for these three, but three things. First thing, evidential. There's evidence. It is a belief that you just don't want to challenge. You feel like you have evidence for it. There might be a lot of scriptures against what you think. It don't matter. You could take people in the area of spiritual gifts and you can show them all the verses that talk about spiritual gifts for today. What do they say? Nope. You can show all kinds of evidence, but they have whatever evidence that they're going to hang on to and this is the way that it is. So one of the signs that we can see is are there a lot of scriptures that give you a different view than the one that you have? But you're hanging on to the view that you've got because that's where your understanding is. That may give you a clue that you may be having something that's holding you back. Is there a little that seems to support it? You have a whole lot of scriptures over here you can't explain, but only a couple over here that you feel pretty... Con- pretty secure in? Some of the scriptures that you're using, do they have an unclear meaning? 
and people have tried to clear it up for you, and well, that's what this is talking about. Oh, all right, well, that's what that's talking about. Then it's better to find, there better be one who finds what Scripture teaches, the one who takes the meaning they want or were given. There's a lot of things that we have a belief on that we were given that. We were given it by our parents. We were given it by our mentors. We were given it by professors in school. We were given it by friends. I was given that. And I'm not ready to let it go. Second is emotional. Evidential is one thing. I think I have evidence that takes me in this way. Emotional is another one. Being moved by the stories of those with difficulties make it hard for them to comply with what Scripture says. You know, well, I know it's not right. The Bible says that we shouldn't do that in our relationships, but you don't know what they were up against. Being moved by stories of people who find it difficult to obey God will lead you to find some of the same difficulties and excuses. The devil loves when we get sensitive to other people and their difficulties in obeying God. Because if I get sensitive to their difficulties in obeying God, I'm opening the door for me to have difficulties in obeying God. It's better to be moved by people who found a way to obey God than by people who disobeyed. Don't be moved by people who disobeyed. Be moved by people who found a way to obey God. The Bible is filled with people who found a way to disobey God. Don't, don't follow them people. Find the people who found a way to obey God. They had a difficulty, but they found a way to obey God. They're the ones we want to find. They're the ones we want to go after. Emotions can get you in trouble. Don't let your emotions... Yeah, but I really love this. But I really like these people and they, they believe this. Don't get your emotions there. You don't know the difficulties these people had. We still know what the Word of God says. If God expected a certain amount of obedience to His will from the unsaved, how much more from us? Here's the last one, coerced. When the first two fail, this is the last resort. When they tried to appeal to the disciples through the first two things, evidence, emotion, and they failed, they simply tried to coerce them. When the first two failed, this is the last resort. Being a champion in the eyes of God means you stood up to this like those in the Bible. Stand up to it. Don't let people coerce you into a belief that is contrary to the Word of God. And what are those who didn't? What are those who did not champion the ways of God? What are those who gave in? We don't want to be those. It's better to be a champion in the eyes of God than a champion in the eyes of the world. How many people love the acclaim that they get because they decided to side on with the uh, transsexual people? And because we sided on with them, then obviously, you know, we're, we're, we're good people. We're, we're, we're better people. There was, I, I put a, a video up on Facebook of an interview somebody did of a pastor who got fired. Because he was trying to be sensitive to these things and the church fired him for it. And he was being righteous and self-righteous about all the... Well, you know, this this is what the Bible says. I think the person interviewing was saying, 
what scripture did you use? What scripture did you stand on? What scripture supported you in this? And oh, he could say, well, love other people. or yeah. But that's not a scripture that's telling you to do that. Better to be a champion in the eyes of God than a champion in the eyes of the world. I do not want to be the world's champion. We want to be a champion in the eyes of God. Let's take a somewhat safe topic that's around here because I'm pretty sure we don't have any people that believe that killing the babies is good. So it should be a pretty safe topic. Most of us would agree that God is against it. But we know that there are many people who think differently. There are people who take scriptures to support their agenda. Try also to say the Constitution supports it. I think this is amazing. The Constitution neither supports it nor is against it. The Constitution is silent on it. The Constitution never says anything about unborn babies. does not say a word. And yet we have people who are making decisions based on the Constitution. Based on our Constitution, this is not the, the moral way to do it. This is based in our country. If we're going to follow our country's laws, it belongs in the states, and the states are to decide what they are to do. That's, that's how our country is set up. I'm not saying that's the best way. I'm only saying that's the way that our country is set up. The federal government cannot mandate what the Constitution does not empower them to do. But there are people who will take scriptures to support their agenda. And there is no scripture in the Word of God that you can find that will say it is okay to kill the babies. Because we have a whole lot of scriptures that shows how God was angry at how Israel killed theirs. Furious. But the same people will try and say the Constitution supports it. And it does not. Nor does it condemn it. It just was, it just didn't deal with it. Emotional tugs in the heart for the hard cases, but often they leave out the facts that are concealed. Now, on the abortion issue, of course, we all know the um, the main court decision that was made, uh, but they didn't tell you a whole lot of lies that were involved in that, and that her actual case that they brought before the the, the court, uh, that wasn't the case at all. They lied about the whole setting. They lied about the whole thing that's, that, uh, that she was involved with, uh, and very little of it was true. But they, they say these things to try and get people, get their, whole, their heartstrings tugged on. Well, this person, because of the rape and because of this and that child would uh, be a, a tough thing for them. They always have these emotional things. But the majority of abortions are not these emotional things. They're people that just don't want the inconvenience of a baby. And so the baby must die. That is where most of them are at. There's not the health of the mother. Most of those are not the case. Not saying those cases don't exist. Saying that's not where most of the cases are. That's where they try and take you. Try and tug on your emotions to get you to believe that this is right. Uh, What happened to faith in God? I love the stories that I hear people come up and yeah, the doctors told me if I had the baby that I I would die, the baby would die, all these terrible things would happen. We decided to trust God and we had the baby and here's the baby, and he grew up and became all kinds of things for God or for uh, the society or whatever it might be. But there's emotional tugs. They try the evidence. They try the emotion. <clears throat> and if all that doesn't work, then they coerce by mob rule, boycotts, threats, such things like that. This is what they will try and do. Well, what area in your life can you expect something greater than what you have walked in so far? 
We need to sometimes just take a look at our life and say, Father, there are some wrong things that have gotten into me and I'm not living up to your expectations. And just as the world, these angels went around the world and they looked at the world and they said, the world is at peace. They are at rest and they do not care that God's people are without a land. They don't care. God says, that makes me really mad. So I always want to make sure that I'm picking my life. God, there may be some things that I inherited as I was growing up, things, belief systems that are contrary to your word, contrary to what you want. And I have to make sure that I constantly stay listening to the Spirit of God to show me these things. What things do I have weak evidence for? What things have my emotional heartstrings pulled on? And what things have I given in to coercion and allowed myself to be forced out of what I felt was right to do? Do you think about it here and there? When you get those areas in your life, is it something that you think about? Well, you know, every once in a while that comes up in my mind. Or you were deliberate about it. We need to be deliberate. If there is something in my life that my beliefs are not right with God, that I don't have his heart on it, then I need to pursue it with everything that is in me. And I need to learn it. Because I need to know what is your heart on this matter. Whatever it is that's going on in our world, when we see a situation, God, what is your heart on this matter? When we see a person who's rising in the area of the political realm, God, what is your heart in this matter? I need to find out what the heart of God is because I do not want to be on the wrong side of God. This part of this chapter, we haven't finished the whole thing yet, but this one part of this chapter, the thing that jumped out at me the most is that God was mad with nations who did not serve him because they did not pick up on this. Is that fair? Oh, I'll tell you what. The world at this point, the world knows who Israel is. They knew that Israel was God's people. Some of them even bragged that God's people were removed. They knew the stories of the crossing of the Red Sea, the wiping out of the Egyptian army. They didn't know all the stories maybe that happened in the wilderness. They probably heard the story of how God fed them in the wilderness. They heard the stories of how Jericho fell. They heard the stories of how different kings went down. They heard the stories when Israel was a nation and large armies came up against them. And God wiped them out before there was even a battle. They probably heard the story of when Hezekiah was in a battle and they were winning. And God said, or Hezekiah said, hold the sun still. Don't let the sun go down until we have finished destroying the enemies. And God held the sun still. All the nations saw the sun didn't move and it didn't go down. And that is something that stayed with them. And they heard these things and they saw these things and they passed these things down. And they heard the words of the prophets that said God was bringing judgment upon his land because they did not follow him. 
they heard these things, they knew these things, and God held them accountable to those things. You may not serve me, but you heard these words and you saw these signs. And you are at rest when the people of God are not in their land. And he was upset. It tells me I got to make sure that I get my life in line with God and I get my doctrine lined up with his. I don't care who passed it on to me. I don't care where it came from. When I see that it is not in the word of God and that there is something different, I need to be one who will drop it immediately and pursue the way of God. Father, we thank you that you will disclose your will to us so that we can know and we can follow after you. For you are pleased with those who follow after your will, go your way. But you are displeased even with the ungodly when they do not follow after the ways that are made very obvious even to the world. There's a world around us and you have made your presence known. Whether they see it, whether they pay attention to it, it makes no difference. You have made it known. And they will be held responsible. Just as we see here in Zechariah, you will hold the nations responsible whether they serve you or not. Because there are some things about your will that can be known no matter what our spiritual state is. But there are other things that we need to grow in in order to sustain them. Thank you, Father, that you pour out your will to us as we comb through your word, as we study your word, as we listen to your spirit. You grow us up in these things and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Any comments? Any questions or anything that I may have left out? Lamar says, Zechariah 1.15, that opened my eyes to something. And if God expects that of the world, how much more of us? How many times have we, okay, I have looked at someone and looked for them to be judged. I get a view from this that aligns with the verse about pulling someone out of sin, hating the sin garment, but pulling the person out to save them. Bad summary of Jude one twenty three. <laughs> no, I know. I get your summary there. That's he good. Says, question, I guess, is would that be similar? Yeah. We understand what the will of God is. And as I am a believer, understanding the will of God, I may not like some of the people in the world, but I still need to go after them. I still need to pull them out. I still need to help get them out of the fire. Um, yeah. Sharon says, thank you for helping us understand what the word of God says again. Hmm. And then second comment, thank you for challenging us to look and see and to ask God if there are things we have fallen into or belief systems we've inherited that are misaligned with God's word. Thank you. God's word is good about that. All right. Well, we'll continue with with Zechariah. Zechariah, I wanted to say this in the beginning and I forgot to to say this, Zechariah, he is going to come at the picture of why you should restart the temple from a different perspective than Haggai. <clears throat> than Haggai. Haggai looked at, this is your responsibility, this is God's call, this is what he wants you to do. 
Go out there and fulfill it. Zechariah goes at this from a different perspective, which is why there's so many prophetic things involved in him. He lets them know, he says, look, don't just go at it because of the building that you're going to see now. I want you to go at this and see the building it will become. I want you to see the glory that is going to come down upon this place. And so I'm going to give you some prophetic utterances of things that will occur and things that will come about. Because as you finish this building, you are getting it ready for these things that are to come. And so as we go through the prophecies in Zechariah, he's letting them know, it is not just the building that you see now, it is not just the situation that you see now, but it is a situation that you will not see in your lifetime. But it is coming. And it's going to be majestic. And it's going to be glorious. And you will have a hand in building that temple. It's quite a different perspective for him to, to come at, but it's, uh, it's one that we will see as we go through the chapters that are here. Well, thanks all for coming on out tonight. It was great to see you. And thanks for all the extra work on the slides and things that we had going on with that. But um, I don't know about you, but I sure didn't know what one of those trees looked like. And <laughs> I wanted to kind of dig into it a little bit and, and, and find out because it's a whole lot better if I could see it than, um, than anything else. So have a great night and we'll see you on Sunday.